and Silas on their missionary journeys, and as we come to the end of this, you, you realize that the, all of the missionary journeys and what we're doing now as a church in preaching the word of God and going out to the nations is, is really made possible because of two great celebrations. It's the, it's the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus. It's Christmas and it's Easter that uh, inspire and, and fill us with, with hope and joy. And um, I, I wish I could tell you that this passage was full of peace and, and light and happiness and Christmas joy. Um, but it, it, it isn't in the sense that there's trial and, and suffering going on. And I thought, how does that fit in with the Christmas story? Well, it does because, you see, we, we, we look at life realistically. Uh, we don't ignore or set aside the trials that we experience. The world will take Christmas and say, let's just push aside the bad stuff and have a little bit of relief and celebrate the good stuff. And uh, we, we look past those things. We look, we look through those things. We look around those things to the Lord who came in the midst of trial and suffering and injustice. So that's, that's, where, we, that's where we are. We don't ignore Christmas, but we know the real t reality of Christmas and that Jesus has come to bring us uh, joy and peace and hope out of all of the things uh, that, that, lead to our, uh, that, that lead to trouble. So let me, let me read to you uh, these opening verses of Acts 25. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the man of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Well, Lord, teach us the truth of this passage of Scripture May the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, our 
strength and our Redeemer. Amen. The unfairness continues. The sham trial continues. The last time we were together, it was, it was Felix. He didn't do anything to set him free. Now it's Festus. And on we go. Same old, same old for Paul. Can you remember the last time you were treated unfairly? When you were denied justice? Perhaps the injustice you experienced did not rise to the level of a man by the name of Steve Linscott. Steve was an Emmaus Bible College student who was convicted of murder and sentenced to 40 years in prison. After 12 years in prison, it was discovered that he was innocent and was released. He said in an interview, I have come to realize that we cannot judge God's purposes, nor where he puts us, nor why he chooses one path for our lives as opposed to another. The Bible is full of accounts of divine action that does not seem fair, that does not make sense except when viewed in the light of God's perfect plan. Well, the injustices we have faced probably don't rise to the level of Steve Linscott or even of Joseph sent into Egypt as a slave or Daniel who was uh, thrown in the lion's den for praying or the babies killed in Egypt when Moses was spared or the death of the martyrs down through the ages, or the martyrdom of William Tyndall, whose only crime was to translate the Bible into English. We see the destruction of lives in Israel and Palestine filling the news these days with Christians on both sides asking, what is God doing? There's so much injustice, and it's not only that, but it goes on and on. When are you going to act, oh God? When's it going to change? And you wonder, was Paul thinking that as he languished in prison, going from one trial to the next? Well, in our passage in Acts, there's a new king in town. He's a new governor. We ended last time I preached with Felix leaving Paul in prison. He didn't want to do anything about him. The trial of Paul, against Paul in front of Felix, the last time I preached, left no doubt as to his innocence, despite the efforts of his enemies and their lawyers to convict him. We know from history that Felix made a big mess of things and was recalled to Rome. If it weren't for his brother, who was a favorite of the emperor, he probably would have been killed. And now a new governor is in town. Festus has come. I entitled this sermon, Here We Go Again. The subtitle of this sermon is There's a Festus 
to test us because that's exactly what he does. According to the history books, he was more than just, uh, um, than either his predecessor or his successor. And if Felix was a procrastinator, Festus was a doer. He wanted to get things done. But even in this case, he sells out on making a decision and leaves Paul in prison. And we don't know much else about him. History is pretty quiet. Festus died two years later and was succeeded by King Agrippa. And the next trial is in front of King Agrippa before he gets to Rome. When's it going to end for Paul? Here we go again. It's the same old, same old. This is the fourth time that Paul has to stand trial and answer charges that are brought against him. He has yet to be tried by Agrippa. The charges have no substance. The innocence of Paul is maintained, but the wheels of justice are turning very slowly, if at all. When's it going to end? Why do we need to keep going over the same stuff again? What can we say that hasn't been said already? The guy's innocent already. Let's get on with the story. But you see, this is life, isn't it? We get into trouble. We want it to end quickly. We face trials of many different kinds, and we want them to be resolved. Okay, God, I've got the message. Can we move this thing along? Luke's storytelling imitates life. Paul has got to get to Rome. And why is it taking so long for Paul to get there? And here's the theme to this passage. When God's sovereignty is hard to understand and justice is withheld, we must wait on him to do his will in his way and in his time regardless of the outcome. And there are four points I want to draw out of the text. The first is the relentless attack of the enemy. The second, very brief point, is the wavering decision of the judge. The third point is the bold request of the accused. And then we're going to look at a few lessons that we can learn from this passage. First of all, the relentless attack of the enemy. Festus arrives at Caesarea, the capital city, and instead of taking a little vacation to get settled in, he goes up to Jerusalem, to the thriving city, the big capital of, uh, of Israel. He wants to make a good impression on the Jews. And when the Jews see him, they know who he is, and they immediately ask him for a favor. We're so glad you're here, Festus. Have you heard about Paul? I think you may have. He needs to be brought to trial. Can you bring him up to Jerusalem? He was left in jail in Caesarea. Can you bring him here so that we can put him to death? He's a troublemaker. Felix had him put in jail. He's been there for a couple of years. And here's what we want you to do. Have him brought to Jerusalem to stand trial. 
and you know that his enemies plan to kill him. Remember the zealots plan to kill him and the leaders of the people were going to look the other way. But now they have lowered themselves to planning his execution. There's no mention that Festus got wind of this, but he makes a wise choice under the sovereign direction of God. He says, I'm going back to Caesarea. You want a trial, you come there and you hold the trial in Caesarea. So after 10 days, he returns to Caesarea and he immediately holds court. He, uh, his enemies are, are relentless. They don't want to wait. And Festus doesn't make them wait. They want to do it all again. Perhaps catch Festus off guard. Festus has inherited Felix's problem and perhaps they can actually succeed in getting this Roman governor to have him executed. And after all, Felix probably wants to make a good impression on the Jewish leaders if he's going to have an easy time of it in Caesarea. So in verses 7 and 8, we have the whole matter brought up again. The enemies of Paul list the charges against him. The problem is they have no proof. They just say what they are. And then Paul is asked to defend himself, saying that he has committed no crime against the law, against the temple, or against Rome. And that last charge is most serious because Rome would not execute a man on religious grounds. They had to prove he was guilty on political, by political reasons. So, the second thing we see is the wavering decision of, of the judge, Festus, in verse 9. Festus, wishing to do, do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges? And Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I've done nothing wrong, as you know very well. If I've committed anything for which I deserve to die, I don't want to escape. But there's nothing to their charges against me. I appeal to Caesar. Does Festus receive the favor of, of those who want to kill Paul by, by siding with them? Or does he risk having a Roman citizen killed without a proper trial? So he does the Jews a favor by agreeing to hold a trial in Jerusalem, but because Paul is a citizen of Rome, he has the right to appeal to Caesar. So he gets out of the trouble. He's a smooth politician. Look, I was willing to bring him to trial in Jerusalem, but since he's appealed to Rome, that's where he's going. Problem solved. Festus solves a political problem. And then the bold request of the accused is that Paul says... Uh, if I go to Jerusalem, I'll be killed. I'm going to appeal to Caesar. And that right of a citizen could not be turned aside. So Festus is off the hook. Um, why would Paul do that? Why would he appeal to Caesar? Well, he would appeal to Caesar because God had told him he was going to go to Rome and that's where he wanted to go. He didn't expect to go as a prisoner, but that's the way he was going to go. He was resting on the promises of God. A trial in Jerusalem would result in his death, and I think he saw the hand of God in that. But why would he submit to a trial in Rome? Caesar, at that time, is Nero. And you know about the history of Nero. 
you know his reputation. He was cruel, he was sadistic, but history tells us that at first he was a good ruler in the early years of his reign. Perhaps Paul thought he would get a fair trial. Shows, it turns out later that uh, it got extremely difficult for, for Paul. He was very ruthless soon after Paul arrived at Rome. He had appealed to Rome, but he now must wait again. He's going to have one more hearing in Caesarea under King Agrippa, who must sign off on Paul's request to go to Rome. So even in his appeal to go to Rome, he has to wait even longer. How long, O oh Lord, is this all going to be tied up with red tape? Well, what do we make of a passage like this? Let me, let me give you a few practical um, points, the lessons that we can draw from a passage like this. First of all, the, the trials that we endure remind us of Jesus' words, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it has hated you. If he suffered, we would certainly suffer with him. Think of the great saints of old who all faced trials that come out of faithfulness to the Lord. I think of Joseph and Daniel and King David who were called to wait and to trust and to endure while they were being tested. And Paul may have uttered those same words of the psalmist, how long? And the answer comes back, wait and trust. I have my purposes. I'm going to do what's right and I'm going to do it my way. The second thing we see is the relentless attack of evil against Christ and his followers for holding to views that are rooted in God's word. I suspect things aren't as bad as they may be in years to come if our culture continues to go in the direction that it's going. But the powers of evil arrayed against us do not give up easily. Satan is a defeated foe, but he is most dangerous in his death throes and how we long for Jesus' final victory. This world under the control of the evil one is growing more and more hostile to Christians in order to silence our witness. Do you see it? Do you pray against it? We wish it wouldn't happen, and we see other Christians who find themselves getting in trouble for one reason or another, and we wonder, is Christianity going to continue to be legal in our day? Are we going to be allowed to hold to our views and to preach our views in public? Or will there be an increasing amount of pressure put on us to be quiet? The relentless attack of the evil one it, it started way back in the Garden of Eden. And it's continued all through history. And Jesus has come to destroy the power of the devil. Thirdly, I want you to understand the pull of political leaders. 
to put personal power and popularity ahead of integrity and righteousness. People like Festus and Felix and Agrippa and Nero and every leader of every country down through the ages are cut out of the same bolt of cloth. They will do what's good for them. How similar the world of politics today follows the bad example of men like the ones I just mentioned. They'll put personal power and popularity ahead of integrity and righteousness. And how the church needs to be in prayer for our leaders that they would act righteously and justly and do what's right. Don't be surprised at the corruption that we see in politics and hold them accountable to maintain order and peace. The best friend any politician has should be the Church of Jesus Christ because it should be our prayers that sustain them and help them and cause them to make righteous decisions. And fourthly, this may surprise you, but I want you also to see the corrupting effects of religion. Rome was actually more kind to Paul than the religious leaders were. History past and present is full of shameful stories of greed and power and war and persecution on the part of those who are to set a moral example. Think of the Crusades and what a horror that was centuries ago. Or religion in Germany that embraced the Holocaust by its silence. It was religion that supported slavery in the United States. It was religion that fueled the witch trials in Scotland and the United States. People who came here to escape religious freedom denied those same freedoms they were looking for to those who came to find it. Even those who are considered evangelical can easily fall into patterns of the world in the way they treat others. I want to quote Brian Chappell, who is the stated clerk of the PCA of General Assembly. He says this, and it really hit home. We often join in the fray giving back the harsh criticism we receive. Some would argue that the Christian obligation to act lovingly only applies to other Christians. They point to prophets who spoke with sharp-tongued zeal. But we are not prophets. We are told in Scripture not to be quarrelsome or resentful to anyone. We are not to give what we receive, but give what we would hope to receive from others. That is the way of Jesus. If we must speak with boldness, we must do so with love. God's truth, without graciousness on our part, is never His will. We need to be careful of how we present Jesus Christ to people with whom we disagree. And one more thing. Paul shows us that we must be willing to pay the ultimate price. Are you? Are you? While Paul defended himself and his actions against those who wanted him killed, he was not afraid to die. And neither have the countless number of martyrs who have gone before him. The passage teaches us that we must be willing to pay any price for the sake of the gospel.
Paul can teach us something important. Although men may align us, the Lord loves us and will be with us. The Lord Jesus died for us. The Lord Jesus faced great injustice. He was treated with more injustice than any other man who ever lived. He committed no crimes. There was no sin in his life, in his heart, and yet he was mercilessly put to death. We should not be surprised. But we know he did it out of love for you and for me. His word is, you are my child. I love you and I am with you. And we may mourn the injustice around us, but we know that ultimately Jesus wins and God's justice prevails. And so when you look at the coming of the Lord Jesus that way, you realize it's all worth it. We belong to the King. Let's pray. Father, give us hope in this weary and troubled world. Give us the joy to know that even in the midst of the trials and the injustice around us that happened to us and that happens against your church, that we can trust you for your timing, that you will one day make all things right. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.